lyrically, yeah. Can none of y'all mirror me back? You hear me rap, it's like hand G rapping is prime. I'm young HO, raps great. Welcome back to another episode of Miami Nice. I am Katie Walsh. I am here with my lovely co-host, Blake Howard. Katie. And we have a great guest today. It's the writer-director of the new movie Happily, Ben David Grabinski. Oh, my goodness. Here he is. I'm back for the first time. And now we're going to say all the things that we said off air about how much we love his movie, uh, his score, the opening of the movie particularly, uh, and the lighting choices, and just how ridiculously horny and awesome the movie is. So thank you so much for doing the show. Well, you know, I've learned to take horny as a compliment because if I don't, I'll just have an existential crisis at 2 a.m. <laughs> being like, why do people keep saying the movie's horny? Is that good? Is it yes. bad? It no, it's, it's, it's really good. It's, it's funny because I, I was inspired by one of the horniest directors of all time, Michael Mann. <laughs> but, but truly the opening of the movie, um, like my favorite movie openings ever, and we'll get to Miami Vice later, is like, this opening, The Hunger, Temple of Doom. Uh, I love openings that are very kind of you're dropped in the middle of almost a musical kind of vibe and they're and they're not verbal. It's just like imagery and music and you're just airdropped into a thing, which is, I there was a time when I almost thought about opening my movie with the song from this, but then it just felt like too much of a inside joke for like two people um <laughs> but yeah it's like you know i have a very kind of visual uh you just get dropped into a song kind of opening and i think i think music and cinema go together so well man basically i don't know what i'm saying thanks for liking happily and watching it <laughs> well music and cinema obviously go together really well and you pick you picked a great song from a great music movie which is streets of fire Well, yeah, I mean, I opened the first song as a Trading Places song, then a Lost Boys song, then there's a Bill and Ted song, and I got into this really sort of um, what one might call deranged uh, uh, approach of making it feel like these are all the favorite 80s soundtrack songs of the characters. That's That was sort of my weird unspoken rule of the movie. Um, there's only one song in the movie that's not that, and it's I had to replace another song because I couldn't get it. And then I found it afterwards, my Nick Cave song was in Shrek 2, which was really heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> now it's like a caveat. Well, all the songs are feel like they're an 80s movie soundtrack. And then Shrek 2. And, <laughs> and I had not seen Shrek 2. And I remember it like it was yesterday when the, my movie was completely finished and someone watched it. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that Nick Cave song has been in another movie. And they said, well, besides Shrek 2. <laughs> and it felt like the worst M. Night twist ever, where I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like staring off into the distance like a Michael Mann character at the ocean, <laughs> wondering about every choice I made in my life to accidentally have a Shrek 2 song to break my uh, sort of cohesive thematic music choice. So... What is what are your thoughts on the Miami Vice song choices? Let me tell you, they're not just choices. They are <laughs> masterful choices. I will look, I earnestly enjoy every fucking second of this movie. And even though I think the Audio Slave songs really work, they are the only ones that kind of take me out of the movie a tiny bit. Um it's but I but I also on a weird level, I kind of love how much Michael Mann seems to love Audio Slave. Yeah, right. so there's kind of a feedback loop there um, because the Coyote sequence and Collateral, collateral yeah. that is so good. But man, he's just always been so good with music. I mean, Thief has just the music of Thief is mind blowing. I, I have the you know a few feet out of frame of the Zoom. I have the uh, Mondo release of Thief, which I was just listening to, and. You know the way his music changed with time like he's moby so well there's like but the music in heat i don't know have you seen heat blake once or twice once uh, or twice it's a good movie you should watch it from beginning to end sometime it's got a lot of <laughs> it's got a lot of stuff in it that i think is worthy of discussion really really yeah, yeah maybe, maybe another doing, maybe my friend and i were like maybe we'll do a podcast where we'll talk about every minute of heat wow but 
it seemed too difficult to pull off. So, but we're still considering it. We're in the brainstorming stage. Yeah. <laughs> Keep brainstorming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someday maybe I'll figure it out. I saw heat at the Academy, uh, a theater a couple years back when they were doing the new restoration and it had the whole cast from like yeah. Val to everybody. And, uh, that was like a religious experience. Um, was Henry Rollins there? He was not, I think he was too busy um getting knocked out by people much shorter than him who are method actors uh, <laughs> as a very failed bodyguard i mean that's literally the only moment in heat that i think i ironically enjoy is uh al pacino versus henry rollins it like they should have set up and his character at food poisoning that day or something <laughs> like like, there, like there's a reason why he can't compete Against yeah. That's literally the moment I requested to talk about. Yeah, Katie is like, Katie's like, I have to talk about this <laughs> because know. Henry Rollins is thicker than a Snickers, Blake. His neck is thick. Those thighs are thick. How does baby Al Pacino yeah. lift him off the ground, grab his face, <laughs> throw him through a window? I'm like, this is, there's, you know, I, I, I recently told this story. Um, I got so mad uh, at a, after COVID broke in Oz, enough for theatres to open up, a great repertory th uh, theatre in Sydney called the Cremorne Orpheum. It's this beautiful Art Deco cinema. And they opened up and they showed heat on the big screen. And of course I was there. And there was a moment where where Pacino shoots, uh, so Vincent Hanna shoots Michael um, Chirito as he's holding the young girl hostage. And this guy in the crowd, he yells, bullshit. And I wanted to kill him because I'm like, if there's a moment you want to yell bullshit it should be that amy brenneman's graphic designer owns that house <laughs> <laughs> like yell bullshit in the right oh, moments it, it like because you know and the great manola daga said look like let us have our romantic moments and michael Mann have his romantic moments making us believe that a girl who works at a bookstore and is a graphic designer can live in that house that's enough romance for me um but uh <laughs> real estate you know, romance real estate romance and that other romantic moment of Pacino throwing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's romance too. Like, let us have our romantic moments in the movie, and uh, yeah. But I would have accepted a bullshit in either of those moments. <laughs> those I, are the appropriate yeah. bullshit moments. Again, not trying to backseat direct a perfect movie. You know, they they before that scene happened, you could have had Henry Rollins step out of the bathroom and be like, "Oh, I shouldn't have eaten that shrimp," <laughs> and then suddenly the door opens and Pacino wrecks him. Like, you just that's the real the key to filmmaking in my opinion is on set you have to be like oops this isn't going to work what if we give a guy food poisoning and that's really kind of the solution to most terrible <laughs> problems just a food poisoning <laughs> yeah so that I after, do, like I my do. next movie is just a bunch of people <laughs> i do however believe wes studi could have thrown him like i just there's something believable about wes studi that has like a grit and a hardness that if it was Wes Studio that grabbed his face and threw him through the window, I would have been totally okay with that. And I get they wanted Vincent to do it because he seems like the more aggressive guy, but I look at Wes Studio and I'm like, that guy's, he's a tough mofo, man. He's a, he's, he's a legend. I think anybody who was in Last of the Mohicans can compete on an action level. Because, you know, we forget about that movie is that it's, if you strip it from everything, it's just a really impressive action movie. Yes. It's just an artful, beautiful, romantic one with like serious acting and writing and themes, but it's like a great action thriller. And everybody in that movie looks like they could wreck shit. You know? <laughs> like, yes. like if they came up against like Donnie Yen or something like Wes Studi in that versus him, I'm like, I still want to see it. It might <laughs> yeah. almost be a match. You know? I want to see it too. I would like to see it. Oh, Why aren't there more action movies with Wes Studi, man? Seriously. He yeah. needs his like John Wick moment, his, oh. his nobody moment. Oh, he could be like the villain in John Wick eight. Oh yes, not seven, definitely eight. Yeah, it's eight. It's eight. It's uh, eight, and and he has to wield a tomahawk. Give a man a like a knife on his belt and a tomahawk for God's sake. Let's do if this. If you can figure out a way for that not to be offensive, it would be amazing. Yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. I, like that stuff. The choreography in that movie is incredible. Yes. Um, but you know, when we get to Miami Vice at some point, I will say, <laughs> uh, I, I view both Miami Vice and Last Mohicans as like just super romantic movies that also have action elements. Like the other stuff is just like, it's there and it's great and it's good, but 
the bones of this movie and that movie to me are just a love story that takes place in the middle of like this epic thing um in my in my opinion so yeah. what's the, your history with Miami Vice? Like, what was your reaction when you first saw it? Like, did you see it in theaters? I, I have a, so I had, had never seen the show, but I was a big Michael Mann fan. Um, and I, but I knew the, the theme growing up as a kid and I thought the music was amazing of the show. But so I, I remember seeing the trailer and I was really hyped. And um, I, I just had loved Collateral and I loved how Collateral was shot. I loved everything about it. And it was really exciting to see that kind of uh, directorial approach applied to this. And the trailer I loved so much. I actually own a 35 millimeter trailer of Miami Vice because I like it so much. Uh, I'm a maniac. Um, <laughs> so uh, I saw the movie at the Dollar Theater in Tempe, Arizona. I was, I went to Arizona for a family thing because I grew up, grew up there, but I don't live there anymore. Um, and my family doesn't live there anymore either. I went to the Tempe Dollar Cinemas to see Miami Vice. It was like, the crowd was almost like in like matinee or Ed Wood when you see people like throwing popcorn at each other and rowdy and stuff. <laughs> and it was completely filled up because people go see anything there. There's like a dollar. Like I, when I grew up there, that's where I just see all my movies. Like my formative experience was like seeing three ninjas at the Tempe dollar cinemas where <laughs> they have no regard for fire safety. So they like oversell the room. So kids like sit on the ground and in the aisle and in front of the screen and stuff. So I saw Miami vice and it was one of those things where I was so locked into it, like just as a vibe that it didn't bother me at all that people were being kind of rowdy and loud. And I was seeing it by myself. And I think it was like in like the third row. Um, and the thing I remember the most is the visceral feeling of when the title popped up at the end, I was just like, it felt, it was so perfectly timed. It felt emotional. And I just remember feeling just, I was just so locked into the movie. Um, immediately like some of my favorite movies i didn't really get the first time but miami vice the first time i saw it i was like this is one of my favorite fucking movies and almost every time i watch it i think i'm finally not going to think this is like one of the greatest movies ever but guess what it is <laughs> but i remember when it came out on dvd after that i bought the unrated director's cut you know because i trust michael mann as a brilliant director so i felt like he probably was making the great choices and when the opening wasn't the same i was like what is going on like i <laughs> Yeah. I have my brother. It was like literally my I went to Virginia for my brother's bachelor party and I was there a couple of days before. And all we were doing was going to watch a bunch of movies and drink and stuff. And I was like, let's watch Miami Vice. And no one had seen it. And I was like hyping them up for how it started. And I remember we like hit play and it's like a boat. <laughs> what is this? On, I just felt like so deflated and it's so cool. And like, I feel like it's one of those things where they, they shot three weeks of boat footage and they're like, we need to show it to somebody but the theatrical opening is just it's like a bolt of lightning man yeah it's it's the only time i, I don't know if you guys remember the and I, i'm sure ben david you might but it's like remember when prometheus had that guy pierce giving a keynote fake keynote speech that they released yeah. like three weeks before as like an extended trailer yeah it was I, a ted talk yeah like a ted talk thing i almost think that that's the only place for that boat race as like a like an extended trailer of like boats going through and, and just no credit, none of the credit overlay, just that they could have been released before, but the I actual, think it's been the menu for the DVD and the Blu-rays, just that yeah. footage of boats on the water. Um, like this, the, the lack of exposition or introduction to these characters and just stripping them of their bare elements is like, so Colin characters, Colin Farrell's character, is alone and sad and having existential feelings about his job and the other guy is really loyal to him and in love and very good at sex pranks um, <laughs> he's very well drawn but like very simple characters almost sparse in the way of like walter hills the driver um in that way where it's almost like cop other cop like you but you do have to wonder like what was Justin Thoreau thinking shooting for like nine months and, and saying four lines that if I ever meet him, I do want to ask about that experience because it's like, he's so overqualified for that part, but he looks cool every time he's in frame. And 
and we can watch Marlon's highlights on this flat screen. Like he just has like has like three lines in the whole movie, and he just crushes it. Um, he does say in some of the interviews behind the scenes that he's like, I don't know where Michael Mann took us, and I also don't know how he found the places that he took us. He's like, I, could, <laughs> I tried to Google them after we were there, and I just they don't exist on Google. They 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 I don't know this part of Haiti doesn't exist. Michael Mann took us there and paid paid you know the the criminals who ran it and the crooked police to let us shoot there for ten minutes and then we left. Um, so yeah, that's it's a blessing. I agree. We I think Katie and I both had that experience, Ben David, of like we saw it for the first time and we completely dialed in, and there was just no one that could tell us otherwise that that it wasn't an amazing movie. Yeah, and it's been it's nice that like I think there's sort of like two camps sometimes of people who appreciate movies, of people who sometimes love movies that are almost pure formalism and pure style and vibes. And there's other people who like really require like an ABCD story. And um, I like both types of movies, but I almost find it more impressive when you can have like a mood piece that sustains for this long. But the reason it works is there's the emotion of the relationship that between the, like the doomed sad romance. Like if you didn't have that, this movie, I don't think would sustain the length. I don't think you because like the the things that really key you into the movie is that and then the trailer park thing of like you really can tell how much they care about each other and they want to rescue her but then she's also a badass so like she's not someone who needs to be rescued but then it's like it's got all that great shit to it but the big thing i was realizing when i was watching it today is like this movie has evolved because look it's always been perfect obviously anyone who says otherwise like why are you listening Um, (laughs) but it's actually elevated now because the current climate in that it is really satisfying watching nazis get wrecked Oh yeah. Like the neo-Nazis and the ending, there's a real catharsis of the, they're so cocky and so sure that they're going to be fine. And they are not, they're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's, it's funny because, you know, we grew up with Indiana Jones and we're like, ha yeah, obviously Nazis are evil and there's no debate to it. And then you get to Inglorious Bastards and just like, of course, like Nazis are cannon fodder because they're all pieces of shit. And then now it's like, well, but yes, we also need to understand that some Americans just care about Anglo-Saxon culture. But I'm like, no, you should be, like, you should be in the third act of Miami Vice. Like, I, I almost, like, the Miami Nice Cut needs to add, there needs to be, like, an ADR line of someone being like, oh, we're just here for Anglo-Saxon culture. Um, it's, it's just satisfying, man, because... When, Bar- when Barry Shabaka Hanley's Casillo is like just seeing the in the infrared cameras, he's just looking for them. You can just overhear in the dialogue the sniper. I'm just here. You know, I'm a sniper, but I'm just here for Anglo Saxon uh, culture. <laughs> <laughs> I was just reading the other day, someone was talking about like the last time that the world was really actually run by Anglo Saxon culture was like during the, like the black plague in the middle ages. So it's like, is that what we want to go back to you, <laughs> you guys? We who, didn't, who, our who track ship, record's bad. I just ship big loads. You know, that's the only other thing on the way they say loads. <laughs> I'm obsessed with how many times they say loads. <laughs> Smaller loads into South Florida. We do go fast boats. You pick up a load, you fly it in the hole. Once we pick up the load. Again, perfect movie. I do not enjoy the movie ironically, but every time I watch it, it's more, it's like the sexualized version of the chems thing from Born Legacy, whatever the Jeremy Renner Born. Really just <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, in this one, everyone just like loads, 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 loads. Like if you had a loads cut, like how gay is remember saying juice on People versus OJ Simpson and they have YouTube videos of every time he says juice. Like yeah. give me a YouTube video every time someone says loads in this movie. Oh my God. And it'll just be Colin and John Ortiz going back and forth Before. saying loads at each other. <laughs> One, a, cu- a couple of sprinklings of uh, of Gong Li in there as well, doing do, right. saying it once or twice. I also love in the trailer park he brought up Elizabeth Rodriguez, who I can't shout out enough on this show. Um, I just love that she gets in the middle of all this heightened, muscular, like really efficient stuff. She like, I don't know, like like narrates a guy's death before it even happens. Like I I can't get enough of that scene. Like I could watch that on the loop every day. Shoot me. She dies. 
Show me. Go ahead. Fuck it, we can all go. That's cool. That's not what happens. What will happen is, what will happen is, I will put around at 2,700 feet per second into the medulla at the base of your brain, and you will be dead from the neck down before your body knows it. Your finger won't even twitch. Only you get dead. So tell me, sport, do you believe that? Hey, We gotta talk about the coolest thing in any movie ever, which is the blood mist. Yes. That floating blood mist behind the head when the guy gets shot is insane. And it's like, you could almost miss it, but it's somehow more impactful to me than like a giant, like Weyerhoven squib. It just yes. has, it's like haunting. It's just like all that's left behind from this guy is blood mist. It's almost like his soul has left his body or something in a weird pink mist. Especially oh. when you kind of have to like figure out that that's what it is. Like if you have to take the extra step to figure it out, then you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, that just happened. Yeah, like he, instead of a big gusher of something. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, it's more impactful to have blood on the lens in the third act than to have every time someone gets shot to have blood spray everywhere. But then you get the John Ortiz death, which is like brutal. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. He gets he gets paid back with that. Like what is it? Like a rocket la- handheld? It's almost like a handheld <laughs> rocket launcher that Jamie Foxx like blows him away with. The romance thing I was talking about earlier. The the thing I love so much about it, like when I talk about the romance in this movie, I sound like someone who's like shipping their favorite CW characters or something. Like I get <laughs> so invested in it, and. Uh, the thing I love about it is like, it's a wish fulfillment romance that is also so doomed from the get go. So it has like these equal engagements. Cause it's like, who doesn't want to take a girl on a go fast boat, which by the way, that's like, imagine if like you had a really fast car and you're like, Oh, that's my go fast car. Like, no, but what, what, what's it really called? And you're like, Oh, that's, that's my, I have a go fast car. You're like, is that a toy? Like, go fast boat is simultaneously an amazing name for a boat. And the silliest but who wouldn't want to take a girl on a go fast boat to havana to get mojitos and dance like that is it's such a like peak level like when you watch the movie it's like someone's like hey what do you want to do tonight and you're like i don't know i mean i can't do that (laughs) but it's so perfectly constructed because it's like she gets to like become vulnerable and find happiness outside of her professional success. He finds that thing he thinks he needs that he's missing. And you know it's doomed, but every time I watch it and she sees his badge, I'm like, no, (laughs) like, I don't, I'm like, hide your badge, you idiot. Like, it's better to get (laughs) shot and and like not have her know. It's like, and, and it's like, you get to the end and it's like, now it has a weirder feeling because I hate cops. Uh, So you're at the end, you're like, you're choosing to become to to stay as a cop when you could leave with her on a go fast boat and never come back. (laughs) There are so many memes that pop into my mentions of people going, he should have gone with her. And then the picture of (laughs) Isabella. And I'm like, "I, I can't, I can't necessarily disagree. I love that to how tragic it is. I I think that Jamie Foxx's character would have understood it and respected it. And for sure. And it's sort of, because that to me, it's like, when he looks out at the ocean, when they're at that other, like, uh, the, what's his fucking face? Eddie Marsan? Nicholas's house, yeah. Yeah, when, like, when he looks out in the ocean, you're like, this guy is missing something. And he gets it with her. And he goes back because he loves um, his friend. And I, and, I, and, and I still find that moving and, and cathartic. But I do feel like, come on man like some we don't always need a tragedy just like that like if it would have been like the badass michael mann version of the end of goodwill hunting you know it's like <laughs> jamie fox is ben affleck and realizes he's not coming back and he's like good on you buddy and uh they well, also jamie jamie fox would understand because or rico would understand because he's as invested in his own relationship with trudy and like i love that you have the balance of the two relationships where it's like there's this kind of lived in, they work together, they are exist in each other's lives. And then there's this like hot, new, incredibly horny relationship that's like captured in a very palpable way. I also would say about their date to Havana, like it's fucking cool that she takes him. Yeah. Like yeah. it's he she's like, We're going to Havana. And he's like, okay. Like yeah, he, I'm just he, like, he looks up. nervous about it. Like yes. yeah. but but he goes along anyway. It's like, man, like that's like 
it's such a great first date. It's like, how do you top that? They would figure it out, but <laughs> it's just such a bummer. It's like, I don't know really what the consensus is of other people or if they, or if that's like their least favorite element of the movie. But to me, I just love, I love that they find this little pocket of happiness in the middle of all this chaos. It just, I find it very effective. I, I absolutely love it. And one of the lines that I love most about it is when they're in the process of rushing back to Kieran Hines, my favorite named character of all time, Agent Fajima, played by Irishman Kieran Hines doing an American accent, um, and Castillo Barry Shabaka Hanley, when they're coming back. And he's like, you're making moves on, you're making moves on her, the girl? And he goes, we're making moves on each other. And when he says that, I'm just right. like, this, it, it, movies don't get, like, that's the most badass first date of all time. And and what is even better is it's not just like a date where he rushes back in the boat. There's like this beautiful coda of them actually having a relationship and having intimacy, even though they're making moves on each other, they're having intimacy, but he comes back a full, like 24 hours later and his boy's like, what's up? <laughs> he's like, we're making moves on each other. And he's like, okay. And I just can't, I can't get enough of that. Like that's that's the movie love, that's disti- perfect distillation of movie love that I want to see in a movie. And especially as you said, I think if you took the love stories out of this, like if if Rico wasn't with Trudy and if Sonny wasn't with Isabella, the movie's finished. It's it doesn't but, exist. Well, you need to feel like these are flesh and blood people who have like desires and love and all that stuff because otherwise it's just like it's just formalism and it's just a stylistic exercise, which is awesome. Yes. But it, and you also need, I just love John Ortiz in this movie is very effective and also a little boy who was rejected by a girl. And now he gets to have a bite, but <laughs> at what cost, you know? Yeah. I, I'm going to, I'm going to tease something for folks who love one, eight minute productions. And I haven't told anyone this, um, John Carroll Lynch is coming onto the Zodiac Chronicle podcast. It has already Very been exciting. It, has already, it has already been recorded. And I'm not going to talk anything about what he says, except that he said to me, of of all of the people that he worked with, but particularly of those kind of character actors, he's like, John Ortiz is a guy who I found myself going, who the fuck is that guy? Like, where, where is he from? I want to watch every movie. And he goes, I kept forgetting his name, but literally loving him in every single movie that I watched him in. And I had to say his name. I like sat, sat in my house and said, John Ortiz like a hundred times. So I would never forget his name again because literally every role I saw him in, he was amazing. And so when someone of like king shit quality as John Carroll Lynch says about you that, you're so good that you're just unforgettable to me, even though your name might not leap out, but you're just like unforgettable and amazing. I think about that with John Ortiz all the time. Cause literally when he pops up in any movie, but particularly, I mean, how absolutely unforgettable he is in this. He's just, he's just on another level. Like he's on, and you find out later that like, he, this is a guy who like re- did plays with Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, like they, they, they did plays together in New York before he started getting cast in movies. And it's like, Man, if that's the caliber of a performer he is, that's why he can do that. Like, that's why it's not just like this petulant, whingy, I got like slighted by a woman. It's a guy who's, you know, so desperate for status. And he sees that Isabella is that like next layer of status and that next way up, up the line and things like that. And, 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 and for control and to keep, you know, flexing, he wants to be the best. And when these guys come along, he, he just can do it all. Like, I love him to pieces in this. I love the way he plays the scene when he has like his murder paper where he's like in his office and there's a piece of paper that just has all these numbers. And you just know that one of those is the right one to hit on his keyboard to blow her up. It's just so like mundane and like, there's no, it's not a loaded moment. He's just very casually blowing shit up and that's going to leave people dead. It's uh, he's both threatening and also a guy who like his didn't, is it i don't know how to say denouement denou- den- whatever denouement. His, denouement denouement his yes denouement whatever his final moment is he gets totally destroyed in a, in such a great way because like if it ended like with a fist fight with him i really wouldn't have bought him fighting them and i love yeah. that moment when 
he's shooting at them and then one of the other guys like pulls him back like what the fuck are you doing dude like we're <laughs> we're the we're supposed we're to be the, the muscle not like we we see that you know how to fire a gun but like be safe dude like it's but very he's kind of like a middle management type too like exactly what you're saying like he's like entering a, a number but um yeah and i love that this like because he has worked with man on other things like this is just man being like just fucking go for it dude like when i see him in a movie and he doesn't have a lot to do i get bummed out i'm like haven't you seen miami vice right. when yeah. you got this guy weren't you like oh we need to give him more to do yeah. uh he's great in, the, in that old way of like you cast him as the villain and it has one line and then you're like maybe he needs eight scenes <laughs> like, like, maybe he needs eight scenes in this movie. Maybe k- just keep writing. <laughs> Whatever the script. Does, isn't he in Ad Astra for like? He's like one of the. Maybe I'm getting this wrong. He's in some space movie where he plays like a space guy for like five seconds. I uh, I somehow the the big movie of the last few years that I somehow keep forgetting to watch is that. And I know I'm gonna love it, but I don't like. I when it came out, I was like busy with work or something, and then. Uh, I just haven't seen it, which sucks. Yeah, he is in Ad Astra. He's in a few. He's in a few other things. Um, but I'm I mean, it's to... always fun to see him. Like I'm always like, oh yay, John Ortiz. But yeah, when he doesn't get a lot to do, you're like, damn it. Come on, come on. Come he's on. in the. Dr- you know what? He's also in another completely underrated and like not a movie that's not talked about enough called The Drop with Tom Hardy. Oh and yeah, Fanny. yeah, yeah. I need to re see that. Watch that again. That's... I have a short list of movies that I've missed. Um, because I love Bullhead. It's, it was that director's American movie he did right yes. after that. Yes. Um, and like, I have a short list of movies that I want to want to see that I miss, which is like Ad Astra that, and then I didn't see Guy Ritchie's King Arthur that are like my weird list of like completely different <laughs> movies I need to fucking watch. Yes. Um, he, but yeah, no, I'm sure coming. the listeners are really excited. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, all right, we hit skip ahead 30 seconds. Right. <laughs> No, I was just going to say, you, you're you the kind of person that programs lots of movie marathons for yourself. I want to want, uh, I was just wondering, do you go with like a, a Michael Mann vibe um, uh, planning when you do Miami Vice or do you program it with something else? Because I'd love to know, like, I, I, I'm an avid follower of your like full movies that you're catching on a Sunday. And I just really want to know, like, what, if you're programming Miami Vice to watch it at home or with friends, what are you watching it? What are you packaging it with? What's going, what, what well, vibe movies are going around it? I mean, the, my kind of approach is I always pick a cornerstone movie that I know will really play. And I figure out when it should be in the order. And then I try to find things that are tonally different enough that there's like variety for the day so it's like if i did this i would probably pick four undercover movies and then just try to make sure that they were all very different you know it'd be like you'd have this and like like the departed is so much different tonally even though it's an undercover movie that maybe like deep cover and then usually i try to go and find like uh, like a neo-noir kind of thing that I love that other people haven't seen or one that I meant to see. Like there's a different mix of things, but for me, I just always want to have like different tones because watching four super serious movies in a row is yeah. kind of detrimental in my opinion. I usually try to get something that's pretty silly uh, mixed in, but that doesn't always work. But it's like, we you know, I did like TV. I wanted to do like, TV station movies the other week. So I did UHF Network, Pleasantville, and Truman Show. And I don't know why I forgot that. I think the biggest thing we haven't really figured out yet, and we will eventually about COVID and lockdown and all that, is it's been hell on my memory. Like, Mm. I've there's the kind of things that I usually remember and the kind of things I usually forget, and and they've all merged into the kind of things I'm forgetting. so that was only two weeks ago and I programmed it and I'm forgetting what I did. So let's spend the rest of this podcast talking about memory and how it applies to my life. <laughs> um, well, what are some of your other like favorite random little moments, soundtrack cuts, like character actors, like John line Fox readings? Death. Rico, I gotta Lazo. go. I gotta go. Alonzo! Fucking go. You don't, uh, you 
John Hoxtaff, starting with that shot behind the uh, white supremacist guy going through the fridge, the camera pans over and you're wondering if you're supposed to be looking at something in the corner. And then you have the brutal thing where he's like, Alonzo. Uh, and then basically t implies there's no reason to go home anymore. Um, and Hawks stepping into that truck and then the hard cut to the you're behind their car racing to his house the way they use sound and every, and the way that does that just that abrupt cut there is so brutal and it is such a great way to get into the movie it's like i don't need exposition about who these guys are or anything i've just seen the stakes of the movie which is like there's this guy who clearly loves his wife and really was loyal to sonny and crockett or sonny and tubs whatever the fuck their names are and then <laughs> When, and when they kill his wife and he jumps in front of the thing, you can tell they like that guy and there is an emotional investment in this. But then you have, it's all set up for that great turn, which is like the guy tells him to turn around, which is just like the one advantage they have is no one knows who, who these guys are. It's like such a clean way to get viscerally into the narrative of this movie. Um, and John Hawks is like, he steps in like he's the lead and that this is like the most important role of his life and he's just so good. It's one of those, like, if he didn't take that role so seriously, the movie wouldn't work. Like, you need someone of that, like, you need this great character actor to show up and just steal the movie for two minutes, and then it just gets everything going. And, like, his death is, like, really, like, the motor of everything, you know? Like, that thing, we've, we already talked about the opening, which is just incredible. The, the sex scene where Jamie Foxx pretends... Uh, to be done early and it's not <laughs> masterful pure cinema moment um every time the camera rack focuses from the ocean being in focus but the actor not in focus even if it's like a goon with a machine gun i'm like i love movies man like it's just <laughs> every it's like he's just so goddamn good at that um there's the the locations are incredible but no matter how many times I watch this, I see the first scene when they're doing the flying delivery. It is just one of the most beautiful sequences in any movie ever. I love it so much. It's, and I just love the simplicity of the gag of like flying on top of each other. One of the guys is pretending to be legit and not knowing about the other plane. It's, it's just so good. And, you know, but there is a textual thing about this movie that I talk to friends about a lot, which is like, it's like two degrees away from a Gruber in terms of some of the moments, <laughs> but it doesn't ever go there. Like, it's really close. Cause like when, when someone's like, well, my mom, mommy and daddy know me. Who the fuck knows you? Well, my mommy and daddy know me. And we don't talk about who we work with. We didn't come down here to audition for business, business auditions for us i love that moment it's it's very close to parody but it's not because the thing i love about it is like the bravado necessary for these guys to do this does require them to be like over the top confident because if they break and if they like don't talk in that way we're like oh do you want to fuck my partner or do you want to work with my partner like if you mm -hmm. don't take that level of aggressiveness they're gonna chew you out and walk all over you so like it has a function because they don't talk like that when they're not working you know right like when they're not working they're not sitting each, talking to each other like well my mom and daddy know me and he's like lights up buddy like they're not doing that when they're being right. themselves they're a lot more subtle and i like that distinction because if they were behaving like that in every scene it would be like a canon film you know Right. That's a good point. Like that, that like, I love that scene where they first meet with Yaron and we've, you know, and, and Jamie Foxx is 
posturing hard and we've seen him <laughs> not you know be like that we've seen him in different modes we've seen him with sunny we've seen him with get in his face the feeb are you the feeb um and yeah i mean he just he busts out all the slang <laughs> rico does and they're so intense and like call it like sunny's a little bit feral like kind of unpredictable and you have to you know it's like they're they're both playing their roles and i think that's an interesting distinction that you make that they're like not like that otherwise and they're doing a performance so there's these layers of performance and it's there's a great i think to tag onto that there's the second time they meet fajima after he's come back from isabella that first time and he says that you know when you sleep with dogs line and he doesn't realize that that's going to trigger like he doesn't know have any context about what's happened with sunny and isabella but like it really pisses him off and then Sonny's like fired up and in that moment Castillo has to like tell him to cool off and that's when Ricardo is like hey man like is everything okay and he's like you think I don't know I'm in mean, too deep I forgot and he actually he goes I'll never doubt you and it like cools him down because like the performance is not for Castillo and the performance is not for Rico it's for that posturing with Fajima like you don't need to know what the hell we're doing we don't have to answer to you we're not answering to you we're telling you how this goes and mm -hmm. it's it's watching him posture up and then like it's that their relationship is so pure because it's like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've been the blustery blowhard friend and you have someone who's like, cool off. And if you can, ha if you love someone and they're like, really get you, they can say that to you and it doesn't make you more mad because the instant reaction for someone saying cool off when you're already fired up about something and you're not close to them is like, Ugh! but I love that it takes him down a notch and it's just their whole relationship then is like this really quiet, deliberate way of talking except when they're performing and this movie was way ahead of the curve on an action thing that we do now which is like i think one of the first times i was really aware of it was like the punch gun moment in bastards uh which is that when you have instead of having a gigantic action scene you just have an incredibly effective quick dispatching of a villain which is sometimes as satisfying as just like a 10 minute face-off between the hero and antagonist like when he's in the trailer and like the kid runs at him and the guy's behind him or when he takes on the guy in the club in the beginning, it's so satisfying to watch someone like efficiently deal with someone in the small, shortest amount of moves. It's just sort of like, it's like bam, 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 done. Like there's this real, and it's very satisfying because it, it works on two levels. Like it's exciting, but it also, is an endearing character thing. Cause you're like, shit, these guys are really good. So it's like that moment is so great and it's so perfectly edited and choreographed where it feels like Jamie Foxx really does wreck those two. Like it's, <laughs> and then it's so brutal when he shoots the guy in the head. It's like the, the John Wick movies have turned that kind of action into an art form where it's like, there's no wasted moves. The difference in John Wick is just like there'd be 20 guys in the trailer, but each of them is like, like move, 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 move. It just has these very kind of, it's almost like economical instead of like some of my other favorite action movies, which are just like very kind of belabored in a great way. But all the action in this movie is so concise and it's really exciting. Like I've never watched this movie and wish it had more action and it doesn't have a lot. No. Um, my buddy Jordan Harper says, I, he goes uh, in some of the screen scripts that he's written, he's like, I don't like to do action as much as I like to do violence. Um, uh, and and I really like that phrase because I feel like that's what Michael Mann's doing here. Is like when these guys have to get violent and, and it's on, it's like on. And you're exactly right with that John Wick thing because I think both of us at the same time in the last month um, and we were following each other and chatting about it was like we were both watching Commando and then I was watching Miami Vice for this. And I was like, it's so funny to watch literally the charting of like the old muscular tough guy thing was like how many, how many shots you'll take at someone and like riddle them full of lead or whatever in that like Bonnie and Clyde way. And then now it's like, if you're not gun food, John Wick, immediately shoot them in the head and they're down. It feels really like quaint. It's like, oh, isn't it cute? They want to like riddle them with lead, like an old 30s gangster <laughs> picture. But like in, in Vice, it's like bang, bang, down, like shotgun blast, boom, like shoot someone in the leg. They come down, headshot, good night. Like it's, 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 um, it's, yeah, definitely. Yeah. This movie felt like on the razor's edge when it came out and it, it's it's awesome now in 2021 talking about it like people like really catching up and it's established that it's like this thing that was ahead of its time 
Well, it's very clear that Jamie Foxx could pull off a John Wick kind of role because he has that real command of the frame when he's like facing off with these people where it feels like he's literally just, he is capable of doing that. The thing that I've focused on in this viewing that I've never done before is that the muzzle flashes in the final shootout, the way they're used is like a light source where there's scenes where people are in complete darkness and the only time they're illuminated is from firing their gun. Like Justin Thoreau is like standing behind a tire and he's, everyone is just like in silhouette, but then when they fire their gun, you see who's shooting or it illuminates the environment. And it is so, it's just interesting stylistically. It feels like really cool and moody. And I'm pretty sure that these are real muzzle flashes because they never feel like artificial in terms of like how the lighting affects the environment or anything. It's just, it's very cool. And, you know, everything about that sequence from the sound design to the shootout and the location they're using is great. And it's also, I think, I don't know if I remember this correctly and I did no research, but I remember at some time hearing that like they were having problems where they were shooting and like Jamie Foxx went home. So they had to rewrite the ending to be in America. So my guess is that shootout was supposed to be somewhere else, but if that's like a compromised location, it's great. It's just like a, such a cool place to have like this big Western showdown. Yeah, they they someone got shot on set, <laughs> like a security that guard. Bad. Yeah, it, where were they? Bla were they in? They Haiti were in. Um, I think they were in uh, Ciudad del Este, which mm -hmm. is uh, in South America, and they were right there in Paraguay. Yeah, in Paraguay, and 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 thinking about. I believe it was a similar stage shootout that was going to be taking place there because we've we've seen a couple of exchanges of information there and, and there's been a couple of points in the movie. And then um, obviously Archangel uh, de Jesus Montoya's big compound is there. And so at some point, I think they were going to do like a final shootout that happened, but a, a security guy and like a military person and a cop was there on set and someone got shot and literally Jamie Foxx and team as is reported yeah, by Jamie Fox is like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Jamie Fox <laughs> and team, as according, uh, according to Kim Masters, who did all the great reporting that went on um, the Hollywood reporter. Um, he's just like, see ya. And then they came back to America and finished the movie in America, but they had enough. I think it was just, but you know, Michael Mann being so obsessive with location and how important that is for the texture of what he was going for. I think he was a little bit disappointed. They had to do it there, but uh, even in the, you can see it even when they're rehearsing and this is months before they're, they're rehearsing a similar maneuver, those guys. And with, with the same sort of blocking of like, they're running in that L shape where Sonny and um, uh, 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 Sonny and Rico going up one line and, and, and um, uh, Elizabeth Rodriguez and Justin Thoreau going down the other line to create the points of fire and Herc's there and they did all their rehearsals for that. So I think it was just a lift and drop and they scored, like you said, with this shipyard location. How amazing is the location of the Kingpin? Like that is so, yeah. like it, it's almost like he's in fucking like Narnia or like some fantasy <laughs> land. It's so beautiful. Um, I love that raid at the end when they raid the empty house. It's so cool. Yeah. And there's just newspapers on the floor. Just and that's the only thing that's left. I think that's audio slave in that scene. <laughs> it yeah. is. It is. Chris Lots Cornell of... just wailing. Loving it. Loving it. I was going to say, I appreciate us talking about the action because it really does underscore like the authenticity that man goes for. And like, even the muzzle flashes, like he's thinking about like, how would this be lit? You know, it would be totally dark or like these guys would be army or cop like they're doing motions and action that is like authentic to what their training would be and what they're supposed to be doing yeah, yeah it's it's great it, you know another movie that has a similar one of the only other movies that has a similar kind of gun action to me is way of the gun the finale yes. and that was also one where it's like mccory's brother or something as like a for like a military guy so like he trained everybody that movie has the same kind of the way that Felipe and uh, Benicio uh, use guns and like behave like their physicality feels very similar to the gunplay at the end of this movie and the gunplay at the end of heat. It feels like someone who really has fired those guns is like, no, this is how you'd be holding it. This is where you'd be looking through the site. This is how you embrace yourself and all that stuff. And, and Tom Cruise has got that for days. We talked about collateral a few times like that, that, that shot from Tom Cruise's hip, where, um, you know, hey, homie, is that my briefcase? Like, 
that shot is unbelievable because he's like t- straight into his body, boom, boom, he's holding, and then he stretches out for those headshots. And there's just almost nothing cooler in the universe like than Tom Cruise in that alleyway taking them out in that. It's just like you can totally tell. That's one of those things where you see two guys who I feel like are equally obsessed with everything that they're doing, like the cru- Cruise and Met. Like to be around those two guys and to feel the energy and the intensity of those two guys working together on something like that, it must have just been out of control it just would have been so <laughs> it, great it's a, very, it's a matched intensity of, yes. yeah. of yes. desire to nail it and a desire to not let the actor off the hook like the, yes. the combined forces <laughs> there has got to be incredible i mean that scene in collateral is one of the i could see it a thousand times and the hey homie thing is never not great it's just it, it, there's just something so great about like seeing characters who seem intimidating they've created this problem for the movie and you're like, Oh no, they've got the briefcase. But then he just never looks worried. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, look, look, there's a homie. Give it to me. Like, it's just so, <laughs> it, it's just like, it's so great. And it's funny. Like you have the contrast and performances in that movie. Cause you have Tom Cruise who's brutally intense. And then Pete Berg, who looks like he's asleep in every scene. Oh my God. Like they woke <laughs> him up in the trailer and then they're like, action. And he's like, uh, and, line, 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 line. And, and Ruffalo is like, that's the funny thing. I, I, goddamn Netflix, it was just in my carousel the other day. And I'm trying my darndest, Ben David and Katie, to like not make Michael Mann the guy whose films I watched the most this year. Like Jean Pierre Melville is slaying. Same with Wes Anderson. Like I'm up to six, seven films for each of those guys this year. Lots of stuff I haven't seen. So like trying to be good. And there's other <laughs> filmmakers I'm trying to go. But I put that on and I'm like, oh, I got to watch this movie. And just to, you know, when you've got like, when you've got Bruce McGill and you've got, uh, um, when you got Mark, Mark Ruffalo and you got, Javier Bardem and you've got Jason Statham and you've got then Fox and obviously Fox is doing, you know, he's the, he's the, the, the straight man of the whole piece, but then you've got like Cruz as Vincent, everyone's intensity in this movie and the intensity of the situation is so dialed up that like, if people walk in, you can immediately see when someone's dialing it in and Berg, as you said, is is like the weak link of that movie. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing, man? Like, you're a director. You should know, like, the energy of all these people is up. Like, you got to walk in here and be up. You got to be active. And he just, yeah, he's, he's they're the like, uh, are they like, uh, he's like, man's like, we're doing another take. And Berg's like, I'll be in my trailer. And yeah. you're just like, that's it. <laughs> that's all you, got. Um, all you got. I, I think he took advantage of the fact that, like, man was like his producing partner on stuff and just like, so you can't work with friends, man. It's uh, <laughs> it's like the whole real problem, and and you can really base it all on Berg's performance in Collateral. You know the be- the performance in the, that movie though uh, that is the most astounding to me is Jada Pinkett Smith because if it wasn't pitch perfect, her presence wouldn't hang over the rest of the movie. Like there isn't a person in the audience who's like, wait, who is this again? It's like it has such a it hangs over the whole movie. Because yes. like there's this because you have this thing where it's like oh that's happiness that Fox could you know get his shit together and have a great life uh, and I hope he gets it like there's a, that real thing that that creates and it's a lot like John Hawks and Miami Vice where it's like you know he has less to do but you gotta you know you gotta show up and like kill that stuff it doesn't feel like there's a like there's like a lot of movies that like I've loved recently that I won't mention which it's like you get these great actors to show up and then just like say exposition or whatever. And it's like, I wish they had those man things where it's like a great actor shows up and then has like a character moment that like steals the whole movie. <laughs> Instead, it's just like, oh, well, who can we get to mention that this MacGuffin is in an area? Instead, <laughs> so it's like, you're like, that person just won an Oscar. Like we need like a little more. Um, right. In a Michael Mann movie outside of Justin Throw. <laughs> No offense, dude, at Leftovers is a masterpiece. Uh, all these actors get, like, great things to do. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he doesn't, uh, and I'm sure he's he's fine. I'm sure he'll be okay. Yeah, I think he'll be okay. He's doing Mosquito Coast now, which I think is another text that's uh, ripe for him to crush uh, if, if it's done right. Um, but 
Yeah, that's the other unimaginable thing about Michael Mann movies after they happen is just to see what a murderer's row are all assembled together and they go off and do other things. Like in Collateral, I'm like, it's unimaginable later that you would ever get that. And it's also the greatest travesty of all time that Cruz doesn't even get a nomination. They don't even talks about him for that movie. Or Jada Pinkett Smith for that matter because I think she's a great little supporting character in that yeah. movie. And it's like, how, how do you... like? I think Collateral is a masterpiece. I fucking love that movie. I love it too. I was going to say, Blake, how can you resist if Netflix is putting it in your face? Like, I just wouldn't be able to resist. I'm probably going to, like, watch it tomorrow (laughs) night. (laughs) Yeah, it was just right there. I was like, God damn it. I'm going to watch this movie again, aren't I? Yeah, it's so, so effortlessly good. So, I mean, it's effortful, but, like, it feels effortless. And that's what I think is so amazing about Man is, like, you know he put so much work into all of it. And then it just flows and feels like it just happens in front of you and you're like why am i so drawn into this and i don't know i he's just so so fucking good i mean the thing that he does is a counterbalance to kind of the intensity of the professionalism of his characters is like his music and sound design has like this dreamlike kind of uh existential vibe to it that makes it feel effortless it just makes it feel just sort of kind of like you're along for the ride there there would be a way to do the music and sound design in his movies that was like really ratcheted up um but i it's like in, in some ways it's kind of counterbalanced it's like but you know he sometimes does have music that's like really intense like the music would be in a heat is so great but then sometimes he has sequences that have no music or he has sequences that have really kind of just vibey stuff when it really he could be like doing the huge loud action score like he makes really interesting choices um because like manhunter is like you know a lot of his movies make me feel like i'm stoned even when i'm not because they (laughs) really do have that vibe um and i just think that's a real good quality in a director Oh, you just talked about before, and I have to talk about just the specific sound cue that hard cut from john hawks's death into them driving is is just yawning silence and it's the screech, screeching truck tires on a freeway into silence but the flash the flash of their sort of like a dashboard siren that's going and the blue and the, uh, the blue and the red like that screeching tires and death and they're kind of racing towards whatever it is and that you know that you know um visual contrast but that sound contrast is just so killer and you can see it in other you can see where it's been influenced and influenced other filmmakers to do it but i just he intuitively kind of gets that stuff and the editors that he worked with get those vibes so strongly that like yeah i it's the the deafening silence in the death of alonzo is just out of control in this movie and it just typifies everything he does yeah, my feeling about a lot of that stuff is I'm sure he tried a thousand things before he got into that thing. It's like he really does feel like a trial and error in post guy of like trying everything um, and eventually almost always arriving at like exactly what a scene should be. Like there's very specific stuff like when they're in the club in the first scene, um, like when they're in the club and you're hearing the music you're also hearing people and sound effects. But then when you cut to the rooftop and you're, you're just hearing the music and there's no sound effects or Foley when like throws like closing a thing. So it's like when he's going like that, when he's goes away from the main location, it's just music. But when he's in the main location, you are hearing Foley and talking and shouting. And it's just, he's making these really interesting kind of rhythmic choices that like also helps you mentally know that you're in a different location. There's just like a lot of, stuff that like makes me start talking really pretentious because sound is like <laughs> one of my favorite things ever. I was doing some interview with Carrie and we hadn't talked about something about my movie, which was there's like a sequence in the beginning of the movie where you see like the domestic life of them at home. And she said, she's like, when I was on set, I had no idea what the fuck these scenes were supposed to be, but I trusted Ben David. And when I watched it, I realized, oh, well he was going to put this weird, like sci-fi drony kind of dread music and sound effects under it, like as a contrast. And she's like, Oh, now I get it. And, and <laughs> she was like, so a lot of the scenes were just like, well, I'm sure he has an idea. And the funny thing was there were so many scenes I was making where I was like, I know what type of music and sound effects I'm going to use here either to enforce something or work against it. Uh, so it's really just about getting everyone there to like do the exact things they need to do. So it'll work later because even my composer, he gave, he wrote three hours of music and then 
not knowing where I was going to use it. And then when he watched the movie, he was like, I never, in my wildest dreams would have written that music for the movie. <laughs> now I'm not, and I'm not saying that as a good or bad thing. I'm not blowing smoke up my ass. Like someone may have hated the music or whatever, but the, the point of it was, it was really fun that literally nobody except me and my editor understood what we were going to be doing in terms of music. And it goes back to the things in this movie. It's like Michael Mann's movies with different music or different sound are not Michael Mann movies. Like so much of his work tonally and kind of emotionally and narratively comes from that. It's like, but he also, he does an audible, like Thief was supposed to be all jazz music. Yes. And then he heard Tangerine Dream and changed his mind. And I can't even imagine that movie. Like a lot of the times the job of director is to realize a new idea is better than the one you oh, have. Oh, yeah. And man seems like someone who's not afraid of that. Like he probably one day like heard Linkin Park and Jay-Z and was like, I got it. This was going to be another song, but now it's this one. But I heard like, I think I might've heard it on this podcast is that they were like pumping that song on set during all of the club stuff. Was it the one you guys did with the trailer editor? Maybe Yeah, Bill, Bill yeah. Ross. Yeah. Yeah. I've and actually listened to a lot of this podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> but but it's um No, I was gonna say you own the trailer and we literally had Bill on the podcast who like cut the trailer and that was a really fun episode talking to him about that. Yeah, it was actually really interesting hearing someone talking about cutting a trailer, not having any idea what the editorial was gonna be. So like they're cutting the footage together, the dailies that they have based on the script, so they can kind of guess how the sequences were gonna come together, as opposed to just being like, here's a rough cut now what are you gonna do for a trailer like it's not something i've thought about before because it's not anything i've ever worked on the trailers were done after there was like multiple cuts of a movie but obviously there's been movies with huge trailers that are like that and i think the biggest example for me is like the tone of the mission impossible fallout teaser is not the movie and in yes. a way that movie i think is perfect i mean i'm always going to prefer the first one but I almost wish there was a cut of Fallout that had the vibe of that first teaser. And this is going to sound sacrilegious, but the Imagine Dragon song is fucking good in that trailer, man. It is amazing. It is, but that it is an trailer amazing feels, trailer. Yeah. That trailer feels like it was before they figured out exactly what the tone of the movie was going to be. Because it has a really poppy, energetic vibe, which Fallout doesn't have. No. Fallout is like a badass funeral, you know? It's like not... <laughs> it doesn't have... <laughs> that same energy that Rogue Nation had. Rogue Nation has that kind of like light heist vibe to most of it. Whereas Fallout feels very kind of like everybody's on edge. And that teaser is a different vibe altogether. Yeah, I, the biggest audible I love in his career is like Elliot Goldenthal's absolute banging score for the for Heat and him writing the final track for the movie and then going, nah get Moby in and like then calling an audible for Moby to come in and drop God moving over the face of waters as the last track in heat. I'm just like golden Thor's score is amazing. Like top to bottom. He ends up using some of the stuff that he doesn't use for heat and later on goes and wins an Oscar for Michael Collins with it. And, um, which is even more amazing, but it's like, uh, yeah, I, I think going, Oh no. Yeah. Moby give, give it's me, not that it's not like there's been 166 minutes of movie that has to live up to this crescendo or anything like it's no pressure, but yeah, just like, just give me something that's, that's going to earn these two universes colliding together. The wildest thing to me is like when it's so clear that the end of thief is tempt with pink Floyd. Um, yes. <laughs> and they're just like, just, you just please rip this off. Like, like in, because they didn't use the original Tangerine Dream music. Like the only thing they didn't do was the final sequence, which is so every time I watch it, it's a perfect ending. But I'm, I am like, this is Pink Floyd, guys. Like, definitely, <laughs> definitely I think Floyd here at the time. I, I think my main, you know, the only thing I really want to tell people is that Happily is available to rent and purchase digitally. And y'all uh, should do that. DVD end of May and maybe Blu-ray. I'm not 100% sure, but I oh. hope there is. I would love to get my hands on a happily Blu-ray. You surely, you, knowing you, you surely would have had a few behind-the-scenes things and so maybe. A uh, I mean, track I have a, my commentary things. is on the iTunes version, and it's going to be on the DVD at any physical release. And um, if people haven't gotten sick of my voice, there's a there's a lot of talking, it's like me for 95 minutes. And guess what? 
it's good. <laughs> we believe it. I would listen to you after this podcast. I'd listen to you talk about all kinds of movies for hours on end. Yeah, you were paid to say that. Like, <laughs> I don't get paid. <laughs> yeah. the, no, it was, it was by me. I gave you $5 for something. At the end, tell them that you like hearing me talk about movies. I'm checking my Venmo. No, I'm just kidding. There ain't nothing pop like, up. Nothing's the audience is the like, but it wasn't. Like, what does she know that we don't? She just listened to this. It was terrible. So. Um, I, I, I want to say, number one, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, I love talking to you, and I'm so glad that when we get people who love Miami Vice as much as Katie and I get to chat to us again. Number two, um, I'm incredibly uh, proud to know you as a person and as a filmmaker to see you get your shot to make something that is so deeply you. Uh, and, you know, when I heard that saxophone drop in Happily, um, the only way, I, and as the kids say, I was like, this movie is so deeply my shit like within minutes of watching it that i was just so um so thrilled for you and i'm so glad that um lots of people are seeing it and uh, yeah i hope that there's a physical because i'm such a physical media nut I, if there's a blu-ray that comes out i'll be buying it and listening to your 95 minute commentary on there as well but man thank you so much for being a part of miami nice it's a it's a huge treat and uh and i love your earnest love of it uh, online and defense of it uh, when anyone sort of talks smack as well you're usually one of the first people i see in there going like oh no no no, 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 this movie's a perfect movie. Just shut up, um, which I deeply appreciate as well. So thank you, Ben David, so much. So you did an Inherent Vice podcast, right? I did. I would like to just say publicly, um, I finally figured it out. This is how much <laughs> I think about PTA. I saw it three times in theaters. I watched it when it came out. I watched it again. And I'm like, I'm going to get this eventually. So I'm never going to publicly say that I don't understand Inherent Vice. And then I watched it a couple months ago. And I'm like, this is a perfect fucking movie. And then I watch it three times in three days. And I'm just like, God damn it. Now, I, like, I could have tried to get on that podcast. Well, look, I'll, 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 I'll tell Travis if he's ever keen for a bonus episode that we have another man here to talk to him about. He's currently percolating, working on something, which I can tell you guys uh, once we finish recording. But there is a Travis Woods One Heat Minute production project that I will just say will fucking blow your minds when we actually announce what it is. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to is that. Is it the keep where you talk about every minute? No, for, no. Uh, one, and look, it's got a great title, One Keep Minute. But no, we, we're not doing the keep. Um, and also, uh, I've teased it as well, but I've also uh, got the next show that's going to follow Zodiac's, um, follow Hot on the Heels of Zodiac as well, which I'll tell both these guys to be an even more of a tease um, as soon as we're not recording. But Well, then let's end this podcast because I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you all for listening one more time. And thanks, Ben David. Thanks for taking it to the limit one more time. <laughs>Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.